Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 122. It's titled, Why Negative Interest Rates Are Dangerous. LaPro and I recently visited Victor, Idaho to eat dinner. Victor is a small town with approximately 2,000 residents located on the Idaho side of the Teton Pass from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where the Federal Reserve just held their annual economic symposium and did not invite me again this year. As LaPro and I pulled up to park near the restaurant, I was annoyed once again by Victor's unconventional parking law. The city requires reverse angle parking, in which cars are required to back diagonally into the street-level parking spots. This is easier than parallel parking, as it requires fewer maneuvers since the parallel parking stalls are at an angle. And I frankly should be happy about this, because the only accident, car accident, I ever had that was my fault was, was when I was in college and I managed to get the rusty side panel of our family's 77 Dodge Aspen hung up on another student's car while parallel parking. But when you're hungry and you're used to quickly pulling headfirst into the nearest angled parking stall, the added steps required for reverse angle parking could be annoying. While we waited for our dinner, I began searching the internet for studies that proved reverse angle parking was safer than parking headfirst. There were several references to traffic engineering studies indicating that it was indeed safer, but I, but I couldn't pull any of them up. They weren't there. They just sort of said the engineering studies say, but nobody actually had a link to an engineering study. But then I stopped looking because I realized common sense dictates reverse angle parking is indeed safer. The safest parking method is the one where your eyes have the best view of potential hazards that could lead to an accident. When pulling out of a reverse angle parking spot, my eyes have an optimal view of cars and bicycles moving along the street. And when backing into a reverse angle spot, the main hazard is running over the curb or backing into stationary cars next to the parking spot. So there's just less hazards when I'm backing in and when I'm pulling out front forward, that's when I have the best views of multiple moving objects. Making sure we have the clearest vantage point when the danger is high and there's a lot of motion just makes sense. This is an example of risk management. I recently watched a video with Jeffrey Gunlock, who heads up the investment firm Double Line Capital. Double Line Capital is primarily a bond fund, and I use them professionally at my old investment firm for years. My personal portfolio is invested with a number of funds at Double Line and the model portfolios on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub have a double-line fund in them. Well, this video was on Real Vision TV, and I've mentioned Real Vision in the past. This is sort of the Netflix of video, of financial video, and you can sign up for a free seven-day trial and 20% discount if you end up signing up for an annual membership. And if you go to realvisiontv.com 
forward slash money, and you can sign up for that. Well, in this interview, Gunlock said in investing, risk management is everything. Gunlock is one of the best performing bond managers in the world, and he admits their firms only write about 70% of the time. 30% of the time, they're wrong and underperform their target benchmark. Risk management is what allows them to minimize the damage when they are wrong. Now, as we discussed last week in episode 121 on indexing, the vast majority of professional investors trail their target benchmark, suggesting they are right only about 50% or less of the time. As individual investors, risk management suggests most of our publicly traded investments should be allocated to index funds and ETFs. Unless, and I posted the article on indexing on Seeking Alpha, which is a, a financial website, a lot of discussion on it. There's over 60 comments on this article. And I mentioned indexing is very controversial back and forth. And the reality is that if you're right 70% of the time when you invest and you have the time to do so, then active investing is probably something that you could do very well at. But for most of us that don't want to spend that time, then indexing makes more sense, but also recognizing there's still a lot of active decisions that need to be made. As I mentioned last week, asset allocation, rebalancing, which asset classes, etc. Now back to Victor Idaho. Their unconventional parking policy has been controversial with several public hearings from upset citizens and business owners demanding the city revert to a more conventional approach. And one of the things they said, they're not arguing safety, they're saying it's confusing for people and we're losing business. Now, despite the controversy, Victor's parking experiment is limited in scope. The town is small, and even if the policy is a complete failure, the unintended consequences will be localized to a small municipality who got its first traffic light less than two years ago. Now, the same cannot be said for the unconventional policy of negative interest rates implemented by several of the world's central banks. Standard of Poor's, in a recent study, estimates 500 million people in the Eurozone, Scandinavia, and Japan are living under negative central bank interest rates. A policy move S&P calls a clear sign of desperation. Now, this is not a localized experiment. This is a massive global experiment. And if there are negative consequences or unintended consequences, then, then millions of people could suffer from them. But let's look again at what negative interest rates are. This is, this is from former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. He says, in practice, this means i.e. negative interest rates, means that instead of receiving interest on the reserves banks hold with the central bank, banks are charged a fee on reserves above a threshold. The expectation is that to avoid the fee, banks will shift to other short-term assets which drive down the yields on those assets as well, possibly to negative levels. Ultimately, the efforts of banks and other investors to avoid Negative returns on the shortest-term assets should lead to declines in a broad range of longer-term interest rates, such as mortgage rates and the yields on corporate bonds. The theory is lower interest rates will encourage more spending and borrowing, 
boosting economic growth. Secondarily, as interest rates fall, investors in theory will shift into other asset classes hoping for higher returns, including stocks. And the resulting asset boom and and buoyant stock market will make us all feel wealthy, encouraging us to spend even more. That's called the wealth effect. The first part of this theory has worked incredibly well as central banks have implemented negative short-term rates Longer-term rates have also declined. Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Austria, France, and Sweden have negative nominal interest rates extending out seven years or more. number of those countries, Japan has negative interest rates going out 18 years, and Switzerland has negative interest rates going out 30 years or more. Half of the world's government debt now yields below zero. Where the theory falls woefully short is it doesn't encourage more consumption, boosting economic growth. Instead, it encourages more savings. Consumers looking at meager returns on their fixed income investments realize they need to save a significantly higher percentage of their income in order to prepare for retirement and other future expenses such as college for the children. And if they're saving more, that means they're spending less and consumption is not rebounding or increasing as a result of low to negative interest rates. Another challenge with negative interest rates, it's deflationary, which also discourages spending. Some central banks are implementing negative interest rates with the idea of boosting inflation up to their targets. But Double Line's Jeffrey Gunlack in the interview points out negative interest rates are, quote, definitionally deflationary. When you are taking a $100 and turning it into $98 over the course of five years, with interest rates yielding negative 0.4% on five-year bonds. And if you look at those countries I mentioned, Switzerland, Japan, their five-year bond yield is at negative 0.4%. So if you're actually going out and investing in that bond and you invest $100, you'll get $98 back because it's a negative interest rate. Likewise, Pension funds and insurance companies face significantly lower returns, in addition, just like households. And that potentially forces them to cut benefit payments. If, when, I, when I was a pension consultant, I had a pension plan as one of my clients, and the, the actuarial expected rate of return was around 8%. And all the, the benefit payments were based on that, the value, the value of the, the liabilities were based on that. Well, as interest rates drop, it becomes very, very difficult to achieve those returns, and a lot of pension plans, defined benefit pension plans, are in trouble, as are insurance companies. It's very, very hard to, to have a really nice payout on an immediate annuity, which I've talked about in the past, because as interest rates fall, annuity payments also fall. And in some cases, insurance companies are having to significantly reprice some of their insurance-based products. Negative interest rates also threaten the banking system as accounting profits get squeezed as loan rates decline. But banks, as of yet, have been unwilling to charge borrowers for safekeeping deposits at banks. Let's, Let's step back and again Back in episode 94, I talked about how money is created and destroyed. And we talked about a little bit about the banking system. 
I was schooled on the banking system. When I first left graduate school, I was a credit analyst, and I was working for NCR, and we used to did a lot did a lot of credit analysis on banks, and it was a very, very cursory credit analysis. Essentially, when a bank would apply for a lease for a, a new ATM, I, we would look up what their credit rating was in these, these big bank books, but we didn't really didn't know anything about banking. And I certainly, nobody taught me in graduate school how banks work. And so we actually had an expert come in from our parent in New Jersey and talk about how banks, their balance sheet works, how their profits work. And one of the concepts was net interest margin. And what the net interest margin is, it's the difference between the interest income generated by the banks in terms of their loans, less the interest they pay out to on their deposits. And, and then you divide that by the interest-earning assets. And so it's in a net, it's a percentage term. And as negative rates have come, as rates have fallen, it, it becomes difficult. So loan rates fall, but because most banks have been unwilling to lower deposit rates, which are you know, roughly, what, 0.2% maybe, they can't make them negative. If they make them ne- negative, then they start charging depositors to keep their money at the bank. And maybe we get to that. But in the meantime, this interest margins on on banks are narrowing, which means their profits are, are narrowing. And it's also and it's causing investors to be spooked. Since the Brexit vote, European banks have lost a third of their equity value just because investors are worried about lower profitability for banks as the Net interest margin shrinks, and as the net interest margin shrinks, there's less coverage for bad loans, and bad loans, as they go up, then that can hurt banks. Now, on a side note, I got an email from David, who's a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, and he had re-listened to episode 94, and and he says in his email, we learned that in that episode that money is created when banks' loans are made, and money is destroyed when people repay those loans. And he says, so... And he says, I'm not talking about the major banking crisis like 2008, 2009, but every year it seems I hear that a couple dozen or so small banks are quietly taken over by some oversight committee and closed or sold. How? If banks have the ability to manipulate their money so much, how can they get, get into trouble and be closed? And, and he's referring to that in theory, a bank could make a loan to somebody that in turn takes that loan and invests it in the bank and boosts the bank capital. Now, in episode 94, I talked about how when a, when a bank makes a loan, the, there's a loan receivable, an asset put on the bank's balance sheet. And then they do an accounting entry to create the deposit, which is a liability. And so it's the idea that loans create Deposits. That's how banks create money. If you go back to, to episode 94, I explain that in more detail. But then what happens? What happens next is the, the, the whoever took out the loan spends the money. They buy it. And they have to pay back the loan with interest. And what happens from, you know, when, when loans go bad, they become non-beforming. And ultimately, if they're, they're not going to be paid, then the bank has to write down the value of that asset. And what gets hit on the liability side of the balance sheet is their capital, their, their, their equity cushion. And it gets to the point 
where if the loans are great enough, then then they they fall below the amount of capital they're supposed to have on their book, the reserve requirements. And, it, and if the loans get great enough, it doesn't matter. They're not going to be able to find an investor that they could make a loan to invest it in the bank. It just gets to, from an accounting standpoint, the bank goes bust and the the the, the authorities have to take over the bank. And so even though banks can create money, they can still get into trouble as they get more and more bad loans. And they get into trouble as the net interest margin shrinks because their profitability, because profits get added to their capital base, that, that which does not get paid out as dividends. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david. netsuite.com slash david. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The final reason I want to discuss today why negative rates are so dangerous is it makes investing significantly more risky. Not only are expected returns go down, but the risk of investing goes up. When I was in graduate school, both well undergrad and graduate school, one of the basic formulas of finance was how do you value a stream of cash flows that go into infinity, so a, a perpetuity. And an example is, and the formula was simply, you know, what is the cash flow? And you divide that by some discount rate because we're going to value future cash flows and we're going to bring them back to the present and say, what is the current value? And, and, and all investments are like that, right? A stock, when you value a stock, that is its current or present value of its expected future cash flow. So this formula is you take the, the cash flow in year one, and then you divide it by the discount rate 
minus the expected growth rate of the cash flow. So it's D divided by K minus G, with D being the cash flow or the dividend, K being the discount rate, and G being the growth rate. Here's a simple example. So let's say that you have an investment that pays a $5 per year cash flow. Let's say it's a stock. In the first year, it's dividends, $5. It's, maybe it's a bond, and, and it's an, well, this is a perpetuity. So this goes out. So it's not going to be a bond because ultimately, or it could be a bond, a bond that goes into perpetuity. But it pays $5. I'm going to use a discount rate of 8%. And we're going to assume this $5 will grow each year by 3%. So we take $5 divided by the 8% discount rate less the 3% growth rate, which means we're taking $5 divided by 5%. If you do the math, hopefully not while you're driving, you'll get to a value of this perpetuity of $100. But what happens as the discount rate starts to approach zero? As that discount rate gets lower and you're discounting, these future cash flows at a lower and lower rate, the value of the investments gets higher and higher and higher to where it actually gets to almost an infinite value as that rate gets closer, where K minus G gets closer to zero or the discount rate minus the growth rate. And that's just, and you can play around with the math. And then when the interest rates gets negative, then you get a completely meaningless number. In other words, negative interest rates or extremely low interest rates mess with the the basic plumbing, the basic math of investing. When you have negative or very low interest rates, you essentially can justify any valuation for risk assets, which which also makes them way more risky. And we're going to see it also makes them more volatile. In the past, on episodes when I've talked about fixed income investing and definitely on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub where there's a course on how to invest in bonds, I talk about the concept of duration. And duration measures an asset class's sensitivity to change in interest rates. And usually it's just applied to bonds. And And there was an example on the Ned Davis website, the research firm that I use, where they show a bond with a face value of $100 and a $5 annual coupon. So this would be essentially bond yielding 5% when it was issued. Has a modified duration of 10 when interest rates are 8%. And this was just a, a calculation that they did of this duration. What that means is if you have a bond with a duration of 10, then when interest rates go up, 1%, then the price of the bond will fall by 10 percentage points. And that's just sort of how durations can be very helpful in estimates. So if you have a 30-year bond, that generally has a duration of 20 years. And so if interest rates go up 1%, the value of the bond will fall. The price will fall by by 20%. And if interest rates fall by 1%, then the value of that 20-year duration bond would increase by 20%. But here's what's interesting. As interest rates fall to where you know our initial bond was priced based on 8% interest rate that had a duration of 10, when interest rates fall to negative 2%, then the duration of that bond extends out 
to 15 years, which means now when rates go up 1%, the bond will fall 15% instead of 10. It becomes more risky. Now think about what happens when interest rates fall and the value of a bond goes up. Well, all that does is it takes future returns and moves it into the present because now you're, you're getting the same $5 a year coupon, but now you're reinvesting it at lower and lower interest rates. And so, and I've mentioned this in prior episodes, the best estimate of a bond or a bond fund's return is its current yield to maturity because as interest rates adjust, if you hold that bond or bond fund over a, a seven to 10 year period, as you're getting these coupon payments and you're reinvesting at either lower or higher interest rates, your total return for the bond, including any potential price appreciation as interest rates fall, will be its current yield to maturity. So as interest rates are falling and going negative, the value of bonds are going up. Your total return over the life cycle of holding that bond or bond fund doesn't change. It's just its sensitivity to interest rates. It becomes more volatile, and you've essentially adjusted or moved appreciation or future returns into the present. Ben Eaker, Ben Inker, who is head of global allocation at the investment firm GMO, wrote a fascinating paper on, on this topic. It was called The Duration Connection. I'll link to it in the show notes as, as well as the other articles I've mentioned. Or if you're a member of my Insider's Guide, you will have gotten an email with this week's show notes. This is a free email. And you would have gotten a, a summary article on this week's episode. And that's part of being a member of the Insider's Guide, you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net or for a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So in this paper, he estimates the durations of not just different bond types, but other asset classes. Now, we don't typically think of a duration of stocks, but stocks, as interest rates fall, the value of stocks also go up because the discount rate is declining. We just saw that in that earlier example of the perpetuity, the dividend, the $5 dividend as interest rates fell, the value of that $100 stock or perpetuity could could essentially be infinite in value. And again, well, all that does is it essentially you have a value of the stock going up, but then you're, you are reinvesting those dividends at lower interest rates. Here's his quote. He says, but the trouble with the returns that come from falling discount rates is that they represent an increase in the present value of the asset without any increase to the cash flows to that asset class. The future expected return to the asset has fallen. And in a way that more or less precisely counteracts the increase in current value. In other words, the present value of the assets has risen, but the future value of the asset has not. Falling interest rates, negative interest rates, accelerates future returns into the present, lowering future returns. And, and that's why returns for all asset classes are, are going to be lower. And they're very sensitive as their durations of extent to changes in interest rates. What happens when rates eventually increase? You're going to see a, the, the value of some of these assets fall. So what do we do about that? Well, we can own sort of low duration or zero duration assets. 
An example of that is cash. Cash is a very short-term or low-duration asset. But but Beninker says the trouble with cash, of course, is that if the discount rates do not rise, it is doomed to deliver little, little or nothing. What we would ideally like to hold is a short-duration risk asset, one where if nothing changes, we are getting paid a decent return, but where a rising discount rate will not destroy multiple years' worth of returns. And then he says alternative investments fit the bill. And he's talking about, and he writes mainly to institutional investors, but he's talking about hedge funds, so merger arbitrage, other global macro, asset class returns that are based on the skill of investor. And the problem as individual investors is we cannot access those type of investments at competitive fees. Even institutions are paying a, a boatload of money to access these strategies. There are active managers that run hedge funds that are very, very skilled and can deliver returns and hopefully can do so in a way that's a shorter duration asset. One of the other asset classes that I know that, that, is, that is good, that's a risk asset, are our bank loans. Bank loans are floating rate loans where the interest rate is tied to short-term interest rates. And so as interest rates go up, the value of those, those bank loans don't go down. Bank loans have credit risk. And, and so what you have to worry about there, you don't have the duration or interest rate risk, but you do have to worry about default risk or credit risk. And, and we talk about bank loans also on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, and I include example ETFs and funds that invest in bank loans there. But, but that's about all we can do. We have multiple drivers to the portfolio, but we reckon we just these are just risks that are embedded into this negative to low interest rate environment. And, and it's interesting, Janet Yellen, in her recent speech at that Jackson Hole Economic Symposium that I mentioned, it was titled The Federal Reserve's Monetary Policy Toolkit, Past, Present, and Future. And in her speech, she did not mention negative interest rates as one of the potential tools the central bank could employ. Perhaps the Fed is looking at the negative results of interest rates around the world and realizing this unconventional policy doesn't work. Now, I misspoke there. The, the, what I'm saying is negative interest rates are dangerous. The fact that the central banks have adjust short-term interest rates and try to communicate what long-term interest rates ought to be, is act, that can be an effective strategy, lowering rates to, to some extent, because it, the, the idea is you're setting a policy rate and trying to influence longer-term rates at a level that encourages businesses to invest in capital projects to hire employees that can boost the economy. But there's only so much you can do, and now we're at rock-bottom interest rates, and economies around the world are still growing at, at very low rates. And to some extent, central banks have banked themselves or backed themselves into a corner. I don't know what the correct interest rate should be because some people argue, well, we should just raise rates and that'll solve everything. No, we raise rates too high. Essentially, we could tank the economy. And the idea is to figure out, well, what is the theoretical real rate of interest that encourages capital investing by corporations, households that boost the economy? 
Now, I don't know when interest rates will increase and potentially hurting asset values. It's something to monitor. Jeffrey Gunlock in the interview said the key to investing is to understand that things play out so much more slowly than you think they're going to and so much more slowly than people have patience for. As individual investors, one of our competitive advantages is our patience. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I provide the tools to help you set your target asset allocation, to set your plan, but also to monitor current conditions so that when it appears that interest rates are going to to climb and start to impact asset classes, we can make adjustments to our portfolios and also to future expected returns. And you can get information on that and, and have a mentor and guidance with, with your investing at moneyfortherestofushub.com. You can get show notes, as I mentioned, for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. You can try out Real Vision and check out that Jeffrey Gunlock video by going to realvisiontv.com forward slash money. And everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money investing in the economy. Have a great week.